Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by InfoSecurity Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website, and presented by me, InfoSecurity Editorial Director, Eleanor Dalloway. This is the Into Security spin-off podcast that allows me to indulge in deeper meaningfuls with the industry's finest minds. Our Into Security podcast today is sponsored by Talis Cloud Protection and Licensing, a worldwide leader in data protection, authentication, and access management. This division of Talis Group provides everything an organization needs to protect and manage its data, identities, and intellectual property through encryption, advanced key management, tokenization, and authentication and access management. So I'm going to let you into a little secret. My guest today features pretty highly on my list of industry favorites. He's straight talking. He's unbelievably knowledgeable. He's got heart and he's actually pretty cool. Rick Ferguson, VP of um, something or other at Trend Micro. That's my actual job title. That's (laughs) it. That's my job title. I am the VP of something or other at Trend Micro. That's That's on all my business cards. Is it is it research, Rick? Is it security research or something That's like exactly that? That's exactly what it is. Yep, security research. Oh, Ten that's... points. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's what it was when I interviewed you for one of the first times about ten years ago. So um, I should have fact checked that, but thanks for confirming. So welcome <laughs> to Into Security Chats. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You never told me you were going to say that those nice things. I'm shocked. Oh, well, of course. Um, I'll continue with a proper introduction. Um, so other than his role at Trend Micro. Rick is also special advisor to Europol, EC3, and a project leader with the International Cybersecurity Protection Alliance. He's a well-known and also well-loved industry commentator and a certified ethical hacker. And of course, he's also a member of the InfoSecurity Hall of Fame, amongst some other excellent company. Um, what have I missed, Rick? What other accolades should I have listed? You know what? What jumped out at me from what you were saying there when you said certified ethical hacker? Yes, I, and I have worded it very carefully, I did certify as an ethical hacker and I did certify as CISSP and maybe this will come up in the conversation maybe it won't but I'll bring it up now I let both of them lapse because I got really frustrated with the pay-to-play model of of keeping certifications Mm -hmm. that you've earned I don't have a problem with um having to demonstrate that you maintain an interest in and knowledge of the industry um CPEs for example but the fact that I was paying dues every regular period, depending on the certification, and in the case of CISSP, I also had ISSAP, so I was paying dues twice, it really became apparent that I was getting nothing for those dues. And I think that's a problem that's prevalent throughout the certification industry. So I I quite deliberately let them lapse. So I, I can no longer call myself CEH or CISP or, or ISSAP or any of those things because I have let them all go because I felt that I didn't want to support the certification industry that worked on that model anymore. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's quite a topical um, point with with all of the scandal around EC Council recently and a lot of discontent yeah. around their model. And I do actually recall back in the day when that happened, Rick, how long ago was it you made that conscious decision? Uh, a couple of years now, uh, two or three years, I, yeah. I think. And how has that 
movement evolved? Have you seen a lot of other people um, making similar decisions? Yes, um, I definitely I had people from ISC Squared reaching out to me at the time because I made my decision public and I made my reasoning public at the time. And, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I won't subtweet people. So I made sure they were tagged and that they understood what I was saying and why I was saying it. So they reached out and they were interesting, uh, interested in, in my decision making process. And I was assured, actually, at the time that things were changing, changes were coming. Um, but I've got to say, I haven't really seen any great changes in the way that industry works. And then all of the, the recent, more recent stuff around CEH and um, EC Council that run that certification has only really confirmed to me that I made the right choice. It, it, obviously, in every, every industry, there are players who are altruistic, who do things with the best intent uh, at heart and with uh, the, the well-being of the uh, information security and the advancement of information security as a profession uh, at the base of their thinking. But they do certainly in the certification industry appear to be in the minority, unfortunately. And, you know, it's, it's also when I if I think back through my career, because I've been in um, information technology for 26, 27 years and I've been in information security for 21 of those there is always like a certification du jour and it always gets oversubscribed and then becomes devalued and then uh hr departments and recruiting um uh people responsible for recruiting will move on and we'll start looking for the next certification du jour it used to be for example mcse uh then it became um cissp then there's a uh, a brief flirtation with certified ethical hacker um, and it, it it moves on and it will continue to do so and I suppose this is just a part of the reason why that happens. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on that actually is is it the am I understanding right in saying that it's the payment part the pay as you, pay as you play that you've got particular issue with? If you don't if there's nothing that comes back to you as a member of that community yeah. Um, then yes, that's what I have an issue with. I don't have an issue with, like I said, having to demonstrate that you maintain um, skin in the game, that, that mm-hmm. you know you you uh, publish research or you secure an organisation, you run a, a a network, you know whatever it might be. So those those credits that 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 demonstrate that, I'm fine with that. There's I don't see any other really workable way to demonstrate that you you should remain a member of that community. Otherwise, you know you, it's like having only to get an MOT certificate once. You have to keep uh, making sure that that you're still roadworthy in that respect. But if the certification agency is asking for money, then the people giving the money should be getting something in return. And I really, in both of my cases, so EC Council and IC Squared, saw nothing. Which, I mean, and that sort of common sense is applicable to many industries and many different things in terms of needing some value. And it comes back to ROI, I suppose. Have you seen anything or any evolutions from any of the associations that has impressed you? Is anyone actually taking this on board and doing something about it? Um, There seem to be a couple of certifications. Um, I'm going to get the letters in the wrong order now because that's how my brain works um OCSP which seems to be far more focused on a it's very difficult to pass that's what I've anecdotally heard from people who have studied for it and taken it so it's a a certification worth its salt in that respect it doesn't ask for uh, ongoing payments and it is becoming within the circles that are knowledgeable about information security is becoming a very 
well-respected certification. That one, though, hasn't made the leap to being something that HR departments or hiring managers will be looking for. I think it probably will. And really, that's when we will see whether or not the old source still applies. Um, you know, if, if as it gains in traction and popularity, if it devalues itself or becomes devalued. At the moment, though, that certainly appears to be a very worthwhile certification. And like I said, a pretty difficult one to get to, which which is good. If you're basing all of your your certifying of, of professionals on what we used to laughingly call at school multiple guess questions, then you're not testing correctly. And most of the certifications are based on those kinds of things. And that's the OCSP, which is the Online C- Certificates Status Protocol. Is that correct? No. See, I knew I would get the letters in the wrong order. Now you're going to make me Google something in the middle <laughs> of a podcast. Offensive uh, cybersecurity. OCSP. So you Googled it too, see, because that's the top result. Yeah. I did. Yes, it's OSCP. Yeah. I knew I would get them in the wrong order. Just found that, yeah. Yeah. Offensive Security Certified Professional. Awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad we clarified that. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did preface it with a warning that I would get it wrong. Uh, OSCP, yeah. You absolutely did. Um, so, Rick, you've been with Trend Micro from, I think, some fairly poor maths for about the same time that I've been with Info Security Magazine, around 15 year mark. Is that right? I will hit 14 years in uh, September. Okay, so yeah, pretty much the same as as me at Info Security Magazine. So I'm always interested in this because you are, I would consider you as fairly hot property and very employable. What has kept you so loyal to Trend over all those years? That's a very good question. I, I do get approaches from other organizations um, from time to time Um, but I'm still at trend Um, and that obviously speaks uh, volumes about them as an employer and that's the reason why I'm there so what does that boil down to in terms of real things Um, obviously if you you feel valued um, at the place where you work you will stay if you continue to be challenged at the place where you work you will stay both of those things are true at trend Uh, when you um, no, even I was going to say when you do, when you succeed or when you do well, but it's not even that. If you continue to apply yourself and continue to try hard, then um, you are rewarded for that effort at Trend. Trend has very definitely been a place for me where uh, I was encouraged to find my niche and then grow into it. The job that I do now is not the job I was hired to do 14 years ago, and I'm not the person I was 14 years ago in, in many mm-hmm. ways mostly around my knees, eyes, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> hearing, all of those things, grey hair. But no, I've been allowed to, to, to grow into my role and into myself. And Trend actually was the first company that I worked for that wasn't um, a North American, a, a, actually a US company. I started my career at a company called Tektronics, who were still are based in Oregon. They were bought by Xerox. I went from Xerox to a .com because that was what you did then. Uh, And then that disappeared. And I went from there to McAfee and I went from McAfee to EDS. Um, uh, So they were all American. And then I went from EDS to Trend, which was founded by three Taiwanese people, albeit they were in the US when they founded the company, but they were our Taiwanese. We're HQ'd in Japan and our official corporate language is broken English. That's that's what we speak internally um, because every team 
and every specialism, whether it's technical or marketing or sales, whether it's R&D, research, uh, uh, product development, recruitment, every single one of those teams is multinational, multicultural and multilingual. And that just that environment appeals to me. But we, because it's Asian culturally, we have a whole load of aphorisms and watchwords and things within the company. One of them is be yourself, be the best part of yourself. And we absolutely live by that. We encourage authenticity and honesty and we support people in finding their own voice and finding what they want to do. Uh, and another one is dare to fail. It's okay to get stuff wrong at Trend Micro. As long as you learn from the experience and move on, try again, but the best thing you can do is dare to fail. Yeah. So yeah, Trend, have, they've encouraged me to to explore what I want. They've allowed me to take the two different sides of my character and put them together. All of my professional life up until Trend was backroom, technical. I was not public facing. I was not a public speaker. I'd never given a presentation before working at Trend. I had only ever used PowerPoint if I was trying to troubleshoot a customer's printing issue uh, before I worked at Trend. <laughs> so it, that whole aspect of my career has been something that I have been encouraged into at Trend Micro. Um, and and that's that's really it in a nutshell. I'm, I'm encouraged to find out more about myself and to apply that for the good of not just the company, but for the good of uh, society. We do a lot of corporate social responsibility stuff, which is fantastic to be involved in. We go and build homes in the Philippines. We have a fantastic internet safety for kids and families program where we go and educate in schools and youth groups around online safety. Every year at sales kickoff, we have a different uh, CSR project. You know, Suddenly, you know, a thousand Trend Micro employees all wearing red shirts will descend upon one or more schools uh, that need help in the area where we happen to be having sales kickoff one year. And we will be out there pulling the weeds up out of the garden, repainting the playground, repainting and painting murals in the classrooms, uh, taking equipment, boxing stuff up, tidying, clearing out. I mean, I remember standing there in front of three, four enormous skips that we were filling with junk as we were you know, literally refreshing and repainting these these schools in underprivileged areas. And that happens year on year, every year. And even if we, you know, we had a sales kickoff in Dubai, you can't do that kind of thing in Dubai. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's certainly difficult to get permission to go and do that kind of thing. So we were filling backpacks for Malala's foundation. And we had, again, a thousand of us out there in the beating sun, sorting through boxes of stuff, making up individual backpacks, writing and painting our own images to go into those backpacks full of educational material uh, and sanitary material to go out to school kids in underprivileged nations throughout the world. That wasn't just uh, Pakistan, that was uh, other countries throughout the world as well. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me there as well. It's a company with a real heart. It's not driven. Conscience. Yeah, it's conscience and heart. We're not driven by the desire and the need to make profit. Some of that I think is probably because we're on the Nikkei rather than on a, on a US stock market. Mm -hmm. We are an, we're an investment stock. We're not a quick money stock. And, and it, that's the kind of thing that keeps me there. That in a nutshell, it's that it's a company with a heart. Yeah, I mean, you certainly sold it to me. It sounds like an incredible culture. And actually, it's one of the things I remember. Um, the dare to fail thing is something that I think we spoke about when I did a profile interview with you. 
back in 2014 in San Francisco. And I remember you saying everyone is actually encouraged to fail as long as they only do it once and then not make it not fail once, but making the same mistake. The once. same mistake. That's right. Yeah. That's Learn from it. Move yeah. on. Apply your learning. If you fail again, even the second or third time, it doesn't matter as long as you're applying the thing you learned previously and, and not forgetting the lessons that, you, that you've learned. Yeah, I think that's great life lesson and really good advice. Um, despite you not being public facing um, or a public speaker when you joined Trend, um, you were no stranger to the stage, right? I believe you were in a band as a musician. Do you know what? As my my uh, my childhood was filled with stages in various <laughs> different ways. My first ever um, being on the stage was at junior school when me and I think one other friend. We were dressed in spacesuits made from uh, milk bottle tops uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, five litre cartons of orange juice for, for the oxygen tanks and that kind of thing. And we did an interpretive uh, mime to um, David Bowie's Space Oddity, which involved a toy robot, a wind up robot on the stage that I think we shot and killed. Uh, something like that. I think I was about eight years old then. And uh, that was probably what gave me the bug for being on the stage. And then I was I was Dick Whittington in Dick Whittington. I, I've done Shakespeare and West Side Story and all kinds of stuff at school. And actually, one of my earliest ambitions was to be an actor. But then I went to university and I was going to join Drama Sock at university. Yeah. But I really couldn't get on with the people who were in Drama Sock. And that was basically the end of my drama. But I picked up singing in a band at that point when I couldn't do drama anymore. The last drama I had done was West Side Story, and that's the first time I'd ever had to sing anything. Um, so I thought, OK, uh, I'm sharing a room with a guitarist. So I, I went along to one of their band practices and they didn't have a singer. So I just picked up the microphone and started jumping around like a lunatic. It wasn't plugged in. So they plugged it in and then encouraged me to carry on singing. And, and that has been the case ever since. So since I was 18, I've been singing in bands on and off at university, at home. When I moved to Paris, I, was, I think I was 24, uh, I was working in a bookshop and singing in a band for, for free beer. That was the that was how my social life occurred, was by being in a band. Do you still sing now? Yes, actually, I've just started to get back into it again. So I, I've built like a mini studio in the basement here and I'm going through uh, redoing some old tracks um, that me and my friend Tim O'Neill, who actually also works in Infosec, that we had previously done. We we're refreshing them. We want to release them on vinyl. And once we finish that, we're going to start doing new songs, which is great. First time in quite a while. Amazing. And actually, speaking of that profile interview we did back in 2014, um, the thing that I remember the most, oddly... Making pots. Is you, yeah, absolutely. You <laughs> telling me about how you had ambitions of moving to, I think it was Dordogne in France. Yep. And um, and enjoying pottery. Um, I know you've now escaped the UK, uh, but you didn't land in France. I think um, you. How's life in Poland? Um, and have you France indulged is, in any pottery? So France is still a long term, uh, still part of my long term plan. I think okay. I would love to be able to retire to maybe not Dordogne anymore. Probably my sights have changed. Uh, probably would be looking more at the Languedoc region the best of the food and the best of the wine and the best of the access to the Mediterranean and so on oh. but so that's still in the long-term game plan I still have no idea how to throw it down with the best of them I have no idea how to make pots <laughs> but the idea is definitely appealing to me just imagine you've got a ramshackle old used to be agricultural building for example and you've managed to keep it looking ramshackle on the outside but it's nice and comfy inside you've got a kiln you've got a wheel out the front of the house so you can just sit there with a bottle of wine next to you making ridiculous pots 
uh, and hoping to sell them to passers-by. I mean, that's luxury. <laughs> and, and that image that you've just so beautifully created once again is why it's stuck in my brain for all those years. Um, and it, it, I think it was how shocked I was. I just didn't expect you to sort of come out with that back then and tell <laughs> me that that was your life ambition. <laughs> but that's, you know, that, maybe that's part of the, I, I didn't expect to be in this role or in this profession and I totally fell into it by accident I'm super glad that I did and I'm and I wouldn't be anywhere else now yeah um but you know I went to university and I studied French ever since I I lived in France for the first time have had like a mental love affair with with France and French culture and the French language I still love to speak it listen to it you know whatever any aspect of it particularly the the wine that's definitely an aspect of it I, I appreciate fully so that stuck with me that you know the experience of going and living in France and and loving the life has stuck with me and like I said there's two sides to my character there's the original sort of artistic side of my character and then there's the professional side which was all technology once I once I can leave the technology behind I guess I'll relax by by in, indulging the creative side yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think actually it's quite a common story that you tell, the story of sort of serendipity being responsible for people ending up in the industry. And it's very rare when I, when I interview someone or talk to someone and they don't at some point say, I kind of ended up here by accident. And I always wonder, like, is, is are we to blame as an industry that we're not creating or forging these career paths that sell our industry to, to students and younger people and, you know, make it easy for them and show them the way in? Is that something that we're failing at as an industry? I think it's changing. I think certainly when you speak to old people like me, the vast majority <laughs> of us got here by accident because there was no industry when, you know, I started my career in 1994, uh, mm -hmm. got my first sort of proper job that wasn't working in a bookshop or a bread warehouse or a timber yard or all the other things I did. There was no cyber industry. There, there wasn't really much of a of a and in a professional capacity, even an IT industry, but there definitely wasn't a cybersecurity or an information security industry. So we all, by necessity, fell into it by accident. But definitely, um, you see people coming up now, and maybe even for the past five or so years, who have made this their career of choice and worked towards it. Definitely, we're also seeing people like the caps lock stuff, where we see people reskilling and changing career paths to come into cyber but many of those also are very young but i you know one of the things i've spoken at uh, i think twice now uh, is a conference for school children that was both times based at in um euro disney which is a great place to go and talk to kids mm -hmm. um, and there are different tracks there was a media track there was a entrepreneurship track another one that i don't remember and there was a cybersecurity track and obviously i was going speaking on the cybersecurity one and both times I was there, the organisers told me that it was their most popular, their most subscribed track. So I think kids that are in school now and maybe kids that have been leaving school for the past five or so years do see potential uh, and do see an interesting career path within cyber, whether that's, you know, the stuff that looks immediately sexy, like um, social engineering and penetration testing and quote unquote being a hacker, mm -hmm. uh, or whether that's a career in sales or marketing or whatever else. But in this industry, it's much more attractive now than it ever has been before. So I think maybe saying that we're failing uh, is an unfair accusation, because if we are attracting people straight out of school or university into this profession, then we've improved it. Yeah, absolutely. And I tend to agree with you on that, actually. Let's just pause this podcast momentarily to bring you a message from our sponsor, Talis. 
When it comes to authentication and access management, Talis understands that the move to the cloud brings an increasing need to protect digital identities and ensure a strong authentication and authorization mechanism to prevent attacks from happening. In a cloud-based environment where everyone is an outsider, legacy access security solutions create blind spots and introduce more vulnerabilities and protections. Businesses are looking for access management solutions that ensure a robust cloud security posture and regulatory compliance without harming user experience, allowing businesses to thrive in an ever-changing global environment. This is the world in which Talis Cloud Protect and Licensing excels. You've been a very vocal supporter of increasing gender equality, um, supporting women in the industry, which, by the way, I think is really bloody cool um, coming from a man. So I wonder where that passion um, originates from. And that perhaps sounds like a really silly and obvious question, but arguably it's more poignant when asking it of a man. Yeah, there's a there's an easy answer, but it's an answer that actually from the people that you know, from the people that also support diversity is an answer that often gets short shrift. And I think unfairly, and I've never said this before, so I'm going to say it now. And 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 maybe I'll get short shrift for it from people that, that listen. I can't believe I just said short shrift three times now <laughs> without making a mistake. I have three daughters. Becoming a parent, my first ch- um, child was, was a boy. And then after that, three daughters. Uh, becoming a parent anyway of whatever gender um, changes you massively, changes the person that you are. And I know you will have experienced this too. Massive emotional changes, massive thought process changes, massive perspective changes. All of those things change hugely and, and irretrievably once you become a parent. But also becoming a parent of girls as a male does give you totally different perspective than you may have had before. It's very easy to say that, hey, this stuff is obvious. You should know that anyway. I agree. This stuff is obvious and you should know that anyway. But nevertheless, becoming a parent, particularly to girls, does necessarily change your outlook on what kind of world is waiting for them and what kind of future is waiting for them. So that very definitely played a role. And like I said, that using that as a justification um, very often isn't a popular thing to say. But if it's true, I'm going to say it. And it's true. Um, But having said that, equality is a no-brainer and while you would look at my actions and activities right now and say I'm all about gender equality uh, most of my actions and public stuff has been focused on gender equality but I'm not all about gender equality I'm all about equality I'm just really conscious that you can only fight one battle at a time Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's a very simple matter for me to make take the stance that I did and pin the same thing to the top of my LinkedIn as I pinned to the top of my Twitter and said, if you want me on a panel, then it must be at least a gender diverse panel um, or I won't be there. And I've turned down plenty for that reason. I was going to ask you how many times you've actually had to do that. You know, I haven't counted, but but plenty. And some of them have been panels that have come to me from maybe even a customer organization or a third party organization that we work with. And then that's, that's come to me internally. And I've had to go back to my colleague and say, yeah, I'd love to help you out here, but look who's on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to talk to the people you're working with and get to fix that. And, and if you want me to be on the panel. 
Yeah. But it's for me, it's it. I'm I'm focusing on the gender thing now because that's a very easy ask of people who are organizing events to say, you know, make sure it's at least gender diverse. I'm hoping that that's that gets people focused on diversity in general because there is so much more to diversity than just male female. Um, you know, there there's there's um, obviously racial diversity is the next big thing. But when, for example, you know, my involvement in it is so limited. If I'm going to be on a panel of four people, there's only a certain amount of demands I can make and where I'm not just making the whole thing unworkable completely for the organizers. If I say, you know, I'm going to be the white guy on the panel, but you can't have any other white guys, I become very restrictive for organizers. And I'm worried that that would begin to defeat the purpose of what I'm trying to achieve. So I am, my actions are focused on, uh, in terms of, the stuff that I turned down are focused on gender diversity. But in terms of the concrete actions that I take personally in the things that I do, I'm all about diversity and equality of opportunity across the board. And hopefully, you know, if you just got to look at the things that I'm in control of that I do, like the Let's Talk Security uh, video series that we, we just finished season two of. And I really hope that I'm hitting a whole bunch of marks there, not just the gender diversity one, but the racial diversity and a whole bunch of other things too. So, I, you know, I live and die by what I believe in. Uh, and I will continue to be very vocal and very public about it. And if anybody out there thinks I'm doing the wrong thing, I am super open to being told that because mm-hmm. they're to fail. Yeah, wonderfully put. Before we hit record on this podcast today, Rick, we had a sort of brief discussion about Twitter and how the social media has just really blown up for the InfoSec industry, particularly since COVID and how that, that activity has just heightened and grown and new people have joined the communities. I know that you're sort of renowned for candid talk. So I just wanted to ask you really what you see as the best things about our community on social media. And then on the other flip side of that coin, the very worst. I have made so many more new friends <laughs> in this mm-hmm. industry uh, through social media during COVID than I ever had before. I'm a little bit awkward in person. I'm a little bit, I, I'm actually a little bit shy, believe it or not, in person. I Did don't you find think small. So? I've never yeah, found honestly, that. I don't find small talk very easy. Uh, right. And if I go to, um, I'm all right at the Info Security Show, for example, because I have to stay on the trend stand and then people yes. come and they come to us because they want to talk to us yeah. um, and so I'm happy to have those conversations but if probably I'm rarely seen at evening events because I'm I'm socially quite awkward uh, I I would if I showed up at one of those I would go to the corner uh, and wait to see if somebody would come and talk to me I'm really bad at going to talk to other people and breaking the ice I am not gregarious by nature at all um, so it's really liberating for me that we've all been forced to confine ourselves to our homes and work from home and converse on social media, which is a much more um, it's it's a, a conversational medium that, that each participant exercises much more control over the terms under which you engage in a conversation. So I'm much happier with that. And that's led to me finding a whole new swathes of people and making lots of new friends, particularly within the UK information security community. And I guess I'm probably not alone in that. I think my social awkwardness is probably very common throughout our industry. And I think that's probably contributed a lot to the fact that we appear to have become more gregarious over the last 18 months. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, What's been the best of it? Um, this massively mutually supportive atmosphere. There are a lot of people um, boosting other people, offering opportunities to other people, giving kudos where they're due. 
um, and and that's been a part of of making friends. So it's a hugely supportive globe-spanning community time zones and geography really don't seem to matter uh when you're talking about the people who are are the best with our within our industry and by the best i mean the best people not not the best practitioners or whatever just the really the nicest of best people uh we're all mutually supportive and that's and you see it time and time again and people rallying around infosec bikini was is just one of those fantastic recent examples of that happening what a fantastic community the worst of it is the absolute opposite the polar opposite of that and it is the bullying the trolling the undermining the shaming um the making people feel worthless that happens in the background and it's not the whole community it's a very small subset of people but people that feel totally okay you know just in the last couple of weeks i've seen two examples of women that have resigned from speaking at conferences because they've been told that they're not capable of it um and they've been made to feel worthless their self-confidence and their professional confidence has been undermined infosec bikini is another great example i've just realized that i can't say bikini very well oh, <laughs> um i feel like i'm saying burkini anyway um, we know what you're saying yeah so that's another example of the same thing and and um there was one moment at cyber house party uh, the last cyber house party where Lisa Forte was talking about her experience of being trolled, being abused. Uh, and myself and Mark Avery had a conversation afterwards saying, I can't believe that we we're not aware of this. We just don't see it. And then when someone comes out and says, this is real and this is happening, it's almost difficult to believe. Of course, we believed it, but it's almost difficult to believe. So one of the things that we have done as a group and and, and we will be doing like a soft launch on the, the first day of info security uh, is to start an organization called Respect in Cyber. And we will be asking organizations, I think actually globally, our ambitions were, were UK to begin with, but the way it seems to be going right now, organizations globally to take a pledge to make sure that they are educating their employees about what harassment is, what constitutes harassment, why it's not acceptable to have a proper policy in place within the organization, but critically to make that process and policy available externally because one of the avenues that you need to have as a victim of this is to be able to go to the employer of that person that's abusing you and say look you have a policy for people to be able to report this kind of behavior it's not open only to your own employees so here i am reporting something and you need to do something about it and also it will give each of us the chance to, to look at organizations and say that's an organization that I want to work for or want to work with. And people that, for whatever reason, don't feel that they can take that kind of pledge, maybe they're not organizations you want to work for or with. That sounds amazing. I remember Lisa's thoughts at Cyber House Party. I think I was actually moderating that panel myself. Yes, you were. Yes. It is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And I, I wrote a feature on trolling earlier this year, actually, and was disturbed by a lot of the things that are going on. And like you say, it's that real light bulb moment when you think, I can't believe that this is going on. Um, but it is important to know, as you did, that it is such a subset, such a minority, and that the huge majority of our community on social media are there to support each other. And I think movements like InfoSec and Bikini um, have absolutely told that story, I think, of, this, of solidarity and support and mutual respect and understanding. So Yeah, and, and one of the things that we, we hope to achieve with the Respect and Security um, organization um, and it, it's not uh, in any way a commercial or a profit based thing at all it's literally just this this thing where we said let's do something and what can we do let's get people to take a pledge 
uh, and let's publicize that as much as we can. One of the, the goals for us is to help new entrants to the industry to understand that respect is there and that community is there and that there is a place and a route for you to go to. Because if you are going to run into this kind of abuse and, and you know, chances are that, that that you might, you know, dependent on, on who you are and, and what you do and how much you engage, but chances are that you might, then we need to create the knowledge before that abuse happens that you are in a supportive industry full of people that do have your back. And that's one of the goals. I have one more sensible question for you, Rick, before we move into the silly uh, questions part of the podcast. I didn't, in, even, I didn't know that was coming. Amazing. Of course. Of course it is. In this interview that I've referenced a few times, actually, back in 2014, you told me that you thought that we were less safe in 2014 than we were in 2004. So now we're in 2021. Um, it's not quite a decade, annoyingly, as that would have been lovely and poetic. But do you believe that we're more or less safe than we were in 2014? Oh, God, why do you have to ask me that? We're less safe. <laughs> oh, no, I, I thought you I were going to say, say that. that. I, I'm totally like you, like you mentioned before. Uh, before we started recording, I had no idea what questions you were going to ask as we go through this. Um, so I'm totally answering off the top of my head and it's my gut feel. We're okay. less safe. Um, and I think one of the the big things, and I, and I mean, as a as society, we're less safe. It's not purely about our businesses less safe. I think from, a, from an enterprise and a commercial perspective, security toolkits have massively improved over that those intervening years. And from a technical perspective, organizations are vastly more safe. So I'll preface it with that. Uh, the capabilities uh, of security tool sets, their interoperability, the, the the level of context that is able to be supplied to a defender about what's happening within their organization is orders of magnitude greater now um, than it was. Uh, the advent of technologies, and I know it's like bullshit bingo or buzzword bingo, whatever technologies like machine learning um, mm -hmm. have made huge strides in improving our ability um, to to detect malicious behavior, malicious files, malicious network activity. And that stuff is really working as long as it's not you know, slideware. If it's really implemented, it's really working. Even at Trend Micro, the, the stuff that happened at Kaseya recently, we had proactive detection for the uh, Soda Nakibi payload. Even though we'd never seen it before, the machine learning went, I know what this is. And, and that kind of thing is great. So from a technical perspective, we're more safe because the tools are better. From a societal perspective, I think that is where I just jumped in and said we're less safe. Because when you look at the the levels of influence operations that we see across social media, the, the way that organizations, interest groups, nation states, governments are able to change, sway, modify people's belief systems or core beliefs even is staggering and the, the the success of that is staggering and we just released the project 2030 paper and we're looking at what does the future hold in all these areas but one of them the areas that we looked at was influence operations and when you think that our online experience only ever becomes more immersive uh, you know take some of the changes that have happened over the covid period where we've all dived into virtual meetings that stuff's not going away and the more we have fully inclusive fully immersive meeting environments or home environments then the more immediate and visceral those influence operations uh, will become and the more difficult to deny they will be on an emotional level um, mm -hmm. so that's one area but the other area that, that made me immediately say less safe was thinking actually about the Kaseya attacks we're beginning to see commercial 
cybercrime operations reaching the level of a level of funding which was previously inconceivable you look at the kinds of ransoms that are being both demanded and paid you know 11 million dollars for jps four and a half million dollars for colonial and now the numbers for Kaseya are absolutely staggeringly huge as well mm-hmm. these criminal groups are now have at their disposal the levels of finance and arguably expertise because in some cases it's the same people that was previously reserved for for nation states. So to see a ransomware as a service group using zero days at the start of their attack chain, uh, we didn't see that before. That's going to be run of the mill because of the level of financing that these groups now have. The area I think that, that we need to focus on from a law enforcement and a governmental and a regulatory perspective now has to be about that money trail. From a technology perspective, the information security industry continues like I said, to advance in leaps and bounds and, and have some fantastic capability. But if we don't start doing something about following the money and making it financially extremely uncomfortable, if not impossible, for people like this to operate with sums of that magnitude, this is never going to go away and it's only going to get worse. I think the fact that that was an off-the-cuff answer, um, it was unsurprisingly but remarkably well-considered. Um, so I was staring good. at fly swatter all the way through it. I don't know <laughs> if that helped or not. <laughs> okay, I think after the, the seriousness of that, we need to move into the silly questions. Um, so some quick-fire questions for you. Wendy Nafer came up with the wonderful suggestion that each chat's guest should suggest a food and a drink item to enjoy the podcast with for the listeners so we sort of do some pairing notes if you like with the um, synopsis of each podcast so what would you like the listeners to be eating and drinking and indulging in when they listen to your interview rick oh well then in that case uh, clearly if, if it's if we're talking about drinking we've already referenced Languedoc and and french wine so i uh, there's a wine uh, in in, made in the Cité de Carcassonne, which is called La Tannerie. I highly okay. recommend you get that one. I don't own any part of that company. Let me make it clear. That's <laughs> not so, bad. But if not, then any kind of uh, Languedoc, Roussillon uh, wine, preferably something like Corbière. Okay. Definitely that one. Um, if you're going to do that, then you would need you'd need baguette. Of course. To to have with that, uh, and obviously cheese. So maybe Roblochon would be. Uh, a nice one if you don't like the really strong, stinky ones. And if you like the strong, stinky ones, then go for Saint-Marcelin. <laughs> oh, God, you're making me. I'm not, I'm not sure about hungry, but definitely thirsty thinking about <laughs> delicious cold wine. And in um, the interest of multiculturalism, maybe um, by the time you get to this part of the podcast, you've survived for so long, you'll need you'll need <laughs> sustenance. Uh, and I would recommend Bigos for sustenance. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, so the next question is the question I ask every single guest, which is the Desert Island Disc song. So um, just like the um, famous podcast, Desert Island Discs, I'd like you to choose just one song, one book and one luxury item that you would choose to take if you were going to be stranded on a desert island for a year by yourself. Oh, shit. One <laughs> song. I know. Okay, and so, people uh, go both ways with this. So some people choose a favourite song, but other people choose a song that they hate because they're saying if you had to listen to it over and over again for a year, you're going to end up hating it and ruining your favourite song anyway. Uh, yeah, that happens with... I learned in the very early days of of, um, of mobile phones not to use songs I loved as, as alarms. 
Uh Definitely, definitely that happens. (laughs) Yes. The thing that wakes you up becomes the thing that you hate. Yes. Songs that I had an immediate thought of what song it would be, and I suppose I have to go with that. Uh, And it's a song by an artist called Butch Walker, who most people won't have heard of. He is uh, started his life as a as a guitarist in a L.A. hair band, um, but went on to become a solo artist. He actually makes most of his money through producing other artists and songwriting and producing with other artists like Pink and um, Avril Lavigne, Bowling for Soup, Fall Out Boy, lots of other bands. That gives him the luxury and time to make exactly the music that he wants to make and not worry about whether it's commercially successful or not. Um, So I love all of his stuff, but there's one song that really sticks with me that's called Be Good Until Then by Butch Walker. And it's basically a song, in his case, from him to his son. But I guess it could be from a parent to a child in any respect, which are like lessons for life. Basically, you're going to grow up. Um, Here's my parental wisdom. Be good until then. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Nice. And I suppose if you're stuck on a desert island, it would help you to think about your family positively and also to to think about yourself and say, you're not here forever. Be good until then. <laughs> nice. Very nice. So that that would be my song. My book. Oh, I know. There's a fantastic compendium of poetry uh, called Scanning the Century. So I would take that because it's poems from a hundred years worth of writing by authors from every nation and culture under the sun. Um, And you can dip in and dip out depending on your mood. There's a poem for every mood. Uh, And the the great thing with poetry is even with the ones that you love, every time you go back to it, you find something new. Yeah. I love the sound of that. Uh, And what was the other thing I had to think of? A luxury item. My luxury item would be a guitar. Of course my luxury item would be a guitar. Why am I even thinking about the answer to that? It would be a guitar. Because then I could have loads of other songs as well. It's almost like cheating. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to choose a guitar. <laughs> very good. My next question is also music related and a very, very tough one. What is your favourite band or artist ever? Oh, I can't do that because it depends on the mood <laughs> and the... The first band I ever loved... The first band I ever had an intense emotional relationship with was Adam and the Ants. They were the ones where I, I saw them performing Dog Eat Dog on top of the pops. And like many kids my age was totally blown away. And yeah. that was really the day that music came alive for me. The first rock band that I really, really felt the same way about was Motley Crue. Okay. In the age of Shower the Devil. And then as I've explored more and more, I found more and more amazing things from different genres. So another artist that I absolutely adore is Ricky Lee Jones, and she has nothing to do with rock. She, I mean, she's, she's blues and jazz, and she's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Um, but my single favourite artist of all time is really, really hard. It's and, impossible, actually, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They, how do you feel at that moment? What record am I going to pick up off the shelf and put on? It's totally dependent on how I feel on that day. But there's three that, that certainly yeah. were instrumental in my ongoing love affair with music. I will accept. I will accept. What's the one technology you couldn't live without? Electricity. <laughs> come on seriously there is no other answer is there <laughs> you're the only one I've only asked this to maybe two or three people but you're the only person that's come up with that so far <laughs> it, it, there's nothing I, I can't do anything else without it unless we go full-on steampunk um, <laughs> very practical not, but, but yes electricity and all of the uh, power stations and solar panels and everything else that, that, that power 
all of the technology that I love. No, in all seriousness, I know what you're asking me. And so it would have to be the stuff that allows me to listen to and or make music. So if I had to choose between them, mm-hmm. it would be listening to other people's music. So my record player, amplifier, speakers, that little kit there. Lovely, lovely. Last question, Rick. Is it coming home? Uh, yes. Yay! Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I, you know what? I watched the the, the game yesterday, and and I, I hate to hear fans booing the other team because yeah. I hated it when it was happening to Breeze. England, and I thought it was unfair. That was our, you know, the first matches that we saw after the Brexit referendum. Every time England got the ball, the whole stadium was booing, and it was like, why are you doing that? But then, you know, you hear the England fans doing it to other teams. That was awful. There's the, you know, the the incident with shining uh, a laser on the face of the goalkeeper when he's trying to concentrate on a penalty. It's all, there's so much bad stuff. Um, and and it's no secret I'm the most anti-Brexit person you could ever hope to meet. Um, but I still, in spite of all that, I don't wish ill on the nation of my birth or the team that represents them. So yes, it's coming home. <laughs> and actually, when this podcast goes out, we will know, know whether or not it has. So you'll either be right or wrong on that one. And I really hope you're right. <laughs> well, Rick, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed catching up with you. As we said earlier, it's been way too long, but I've loved chatting to you and asking you all the sensible questions and all the silly ones. So thanks it's so much for your time. Pleasure. And I think the only bad word I said was was bullshit. I think. I, I, I was, well, <laughs> yes, you've done really well. I was going to mention that you get. 10 points but thank you very much much. well done (laughs) it's been a pleasure thank you Eleanor thank you a huge thank you to Talis our sponsor for this episode of Into Security Chats for businesses to sustain growth organizations need a credible effective and efficient access management solution that supports all possible use cases a solution that will enable organizations to thrive in a new world order. Talis SafeNet Trusted Access is that solution. To find out more, visit cpl.talisgroup.com slash access-management-safenet-trusted-access. Thank you for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. I've been Eleanor Dalloway, and it has been a pleasure to have you listening in. Join the conversation next month as I get to know my next guest.